Today we're reading from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43, and after that, Romans 8, 18 to 39. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed when they came to the place called the Skull. They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said, uh, then he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And um, Romans 8 from verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. 
And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good morning, my name's Stephen, I'm one of the ministers here. About three years ago I had to go and see a neurologist, which is a doctor for nerve kind of conditions. He was a nice guy, round about my age, but I've got to say it was a bit of an unusual appointment. <clears throat> I could tell something was up and, and the problem wasn't with me, even though I was obviously there for my problems became clear that, that the doctor was a bit shaken by something. And it, it took me a couple of minutes to realise that he wanted to talk about me having given up being a pharmacist and having become a minister. To start with, I thought he was just making conversation. You know, I, I, I thought that he'd be a busy kind of guy who'd probably just want to do what all specialists want to do, see you in five minutes and then charge you $300. But he didn't seem to want to talk about me at all or why I was there, something else was on his mind. And it turned out his, his cousin had just become a Christian over in Melbourne, and he just couldn't understand it. And so he said to me, he's far smarter than me, and I just don't get it. He was shaken. Uh, I tried to point out to him to start off with that there's really intelligent people who believe in God, like Francis Collins, the... the head of the Human Genome Project, just like there's unintelligent people who believe in God, just like there's intelligent people who believe in atheism and un unintelligent people who believe in atheism as well. But then he got straight to 
his point. He said to me, but what about all the mess in this world? What about all the suffering? Being a a neurologist, no doubt he saw more than his fair share of suffering in this world. You know, neurological diseases are some of the worst. I I was there because for about six months I had pain standing up, unbearable pain whenever I stood up. It was terrible. But it was nothing compared to what he must see on a daily basis. So I started to try and explain there in in that uh, doctor's room some of the reasons why God would allow the mess of this world. But he just kept interrupting me. And it, it wasn't so much that he was being rude as he was being raw. And he pushed me, pushed me really hard in a way that that was surprising since I was there as a patient seeking his help. He'd just taken my family history and and my history, which is how he knew that I used to be a pharmacist. But also in my family history, he just knew, uh, he just heard how my mum had died. And he says to me, what about the fact that your mum died when she was just 46 and you were just 20? How can you believe in God when he lets things like that happen? Or when he lets children die in Syria? And then he says to me, I just don't have the f- enough faith to believe there's a God. I wasn't offended, even though I was a bit surprised that he'd gotten so personal in that context. Now, I could tell he wasn't trying to be rude, and actually my, my heart went out to him. But he was pushing the right buttons by talking about my mum's death. He was using fighting words, and I wasn't going to let him keep interrupting me after that. So I interrupted him and I said, yes, I have the problem of having to try and understand how a loving God would allow so much mess in this world. But you've got a different problem and one that I reckon is far worse. You've got the problem of having to answer, so what? Why should suffering even matter? Why should you have any moral objection to it? If there's no God, then really there's no such thing as good and evil. Things just are. And I said to him, if you're completely logically consistent, then you can only look at that child dying in Syria as neither right nor wrong. It just is. And then I said to him, I don't have enough faith for that. Because I think that is far, far more unbelievable. He was silent for a bit. And I could see that he'd got my point. And then after a while, he said, I've never really thought about it like that. And then he decided we'd better get on with the appointment. <laughs> I think he felt a little bit bad, though, because he bulk billed me. <laughs> Don't you reckon this is such a huge question for so many of us? Hey, God, why are things so messed up? It's such a difficult question to answer. And it, and it can be such a painful question to answer. It's a question that we can ask on different levels as well. You know, we could ask it in a theoretical, philosophical kind of way. We could logically want to know, is it possible to believe in a good God when all around us we're surrounded with things that aren't good? But we can also ask this question in in a very personal way. This question, it can almost boil out of us uncontrollably from a place of intense pain and suffering. Hey God, what are you doing? How could you just stand by and do nothing? How could you be silent when I begged you? Now, both ways of asking this question are perfectly legitimate. But to answer this question philosophically, when we're 
in intense personal pain, it'll definitely feel inadequate and, and it can actually even feel cruel. And yet the truth is that it's impossible for us today to answer this question on a completely personal level. It's just not possible for me to collect all our stories of intense pain and, and to wrestle with those in 25 minutes from up here. Each of us has got to do our own wrestling with God on this and, and that does take time and it takes pouring our, out our hearts to God. It's what you so often find in the pages of the Bible. Do you know a, a third of the songs of the Bible are wrestling with God about this sort of thing? Let me show you an example. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Or Psalm 13. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Do you see, the Bible is not afraid of tackling this question. But part of the answer is that, that we've each got to tackle it, each got to wrestle it out personally with God. So what we're going to do today, it's got to be, just by the nature of things, a bit more of the philosophical wrestling with this question. But we will, we will get a bit of a glimpse of what this means for us personally in our pain too. But please forgive me if, if I don't answer where you're at today or if what I say from up here makes you feel your own pain more acutely that's not at all my intention here's what we're going to try and do today we're going to ask why are things so messed up and part of the answer we'll see is that things are so messed up because of us humans and now I, I know that that doesn't fully answer the question because it leads to another question straight away so why doesn't God do something about it or at least why doesn't God do a better job of doing something about it and the answer is, God has his reasons for dealing with the mess of this world in the way that he does. Some of these reasons we can know, some of them we can guess at, and some of them we just can't know. And this raises what I think is the question behind the question. And it's the question that really matters in the end. Can I trust God with the mess of this world? That's the journey that I'm hoping to take us on and, and I think you can see already that this is really just going to be a taster today of a really important question and I'd encourage you to keep thinking it through. Maybe at the life course, the life series that we're going to do is an excellent place to do that. So why are things so messed up? A huge part of that answer, of the answer to that, is things are so messed up because of us humans. You know, look at our world. Look at climate change. Look at Leaders who are unsettling, disturbing even. Look at whole political systems that are on about staying in power rather than on about governing well. Look at a widespread culture of abuse of power that the Me Too movement exposed. It's pretty clear who's behind all this mess, isn't it? It's pretty clear that we're all a part of the collective mess in different ways, to different degrees, but no one is completely innocent. We get the politicians we vote for. We're the ones who, who create the demand for, for the media cycles that cause a lot of the mess in this world. 
we consume in a way that isn't fully mindful of future generations or even mindful of current generations living in poverty at home or overseas. And even those of us who are more mindful of the mess of this world, we're still not completely innocent. We still contribute to the mess, sometimes accidentally, but sometimes we know exactly what we're doing. And we can and we should blame the system at times, but we should also look closer to home and look at ourselves. And if we look honestly, then what do we see? We see that in small ways or big ways, we all contribute to the mess of this world. We all contribute to the big picture problems, but also the day-to-day problems in our families and in our friendships and our workplaces. Not just by what we do, but also by, by what we won't do, what we fail to do. And even if we have the, the best intentions to not contribute to the mess of this world, I reckon the real sting is that we still will. Coming home from church last Sunday, would you believe I got a speeding ticket? Partly I'm just confessing because some of you might have actually seen me on the road. I, I wasn't hauled over the bonnet, but I may as well have been. Now, I could give you five reasons why it was understandable, but the truth is, it's inexcusable. Had I hit someone or, or caused an accident by speeding, I would have been contributing massively to an already messed up world. And no matter what my reasons for speeding were, it's inexcusable that I'd, I'd play Russian roulette with life like that. Apparently, a uh, newspaper in the early 1900s invited people to write into the newspaper and say what they think's wrong with the world. And a guy called G.K. Chesterton simply wrote, Dear Sir, I am. It's a very simple answer. But it captures the truth profoundly. This world is so messed up in large part because of us. And Jesus said that it should be obvious to us that what makes so much mess in the world comes from the mess that's actually within us all. Listen to what he said. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. See, so much of the mess of this world we can, we can quite easily trace back to us. But having said that, this doesn't fully answer the question, does it? Because even before we ask, so why doesn't God do something about the mess that we cause, there's still the problem that there's, there's quite a bit of mess in this world that's not easy to trace back to us. You know, think of bushfires. Soon we'll be trying to figure out, you know, is it because of climate change? Is it because of land management? Is it because of arson? And, and if it is, you know, some of those or all of those, then human mess is, is still to blame. But even if there wasn't climate change or we had the best land management principles or there wasn't arson, even still there'd be droughts. And there'd still be some bushfires and there'd still be some loss of life and property. And it'd be pretty hard to blame that on humans. Or think of things like sickness 
We can't always link sickness to pollution or lifestyle choices. A lot of the time, sickness isn't caused by human failure. Or think of earthquakes and tsunamis. And there's, there's no real way you can directly link this to human actions. So even though so much of this mess in the world is because of us humans, still we haven't fully answered the question. But actually, in the Bible... Even mess like this is linked to us humans. Not directly. Not like how some people sometimes joke, you know, that if they do something, they'll be struck by lightning. It's not a direct cause and effect relationship like that. In the Bible, humanity's rejection of what's good and right actually puts the whole creation out of kilter, like a spinning top that you touch. Humans choosing to be out of step with God puts the whole creation, the whole world out of step with God. It's, it's kind of like we've added water to the petrol tank of a car. And so every so often now and then, the car lurch, lurches violently and threatens to cut out, splutters. Humans have tried to cut out God from the picture and, and even the physical world is affected by this. For us today, this, this is a really foreign concept because we want to radically separate all things physical from all things spiritual. But God says that's not the way things really are. He says physical things and spiritual things are interconnected. We'll come back to this in a minute when we look at why it is that God doesn't just instantly bring us back into step with him. But first, it's at this point that some people... They want to give up even asking God this question. They conclude that because there's mess in this world, therefore there can't be a God. The, the logic goes like this. If there's an all-powerful God, he would be good. An all-powerful good God would get rid of mess. Mess exists. And so therefore, an all-powerful good God does not exist. Do you see the argument? By this argument, you have to conclude that God's either not all-powerful, he's not good, or he doesn't exist. But the, the problem with this argument is that one of these premises is faulty, and so the whole thing falls over. And here's the premise that's faulty. An all-powerful good God would get rid of mess. Now, that's not necessarily true. In fact, it's quite clear that it's false. Let me give you an example which shows this. When I was a kid, quite young, I climbed a tree in my backyard and I was about to catch a moth. It's a kind of moth that you, I haven't seen over here. It's a, a tiger moth. It's black and orange, as you can see. And I was reaching up for it in this tree when another kid down on the ground said, watch out, they're poisonous. Now, they're not unless you eat whole kilos of them. But I suddenly doubted myself and pulled back, lost my grip, and fell on a rusty star picket post on my upper thigh, or less ceremoniously known as the lower butt. And it took a decent chunk out of my, my leg. I kind of feel a little bit queasy because I can still feel the spot where it is. It took a decent chunk out of my leg, and my sisters later went looking for that chunk. They couldn't find it, so they concluded the dog must have eaten it. <laughs> I can laugh now, but it wasn't funny back then, let me tell you. <laughs> so my parents decided that they'd better take me to the doctor to get s stitches after 
after uh, a, f- a few hours overnight, actually. But I was too young to understand the need for that. I couldn't understand why we couldn't just slap a Band-Aid on it and leave it alone. And I was quite upset and angry at my mum for trying to take me to the doctor to get stitches. In fact, somehow I managed to run several laps around the outside of the house before she called a friend over and they pinned me down, threw me in the car and took me to the doctor. Now, it's not a perfect parallel, but do you see the point? From my perspective, my mum and the doctor were inflicting pain and suffering and they were being cruel. But clearly they had very different motivations, reasons to be doing what they were doing, even if I didn't understand them. You know, the fact that the doctor caused me pain didn't mean that he was evil, didn't mean he was ineffective, it didn't mean that he was non-existent. He had good reason to be doing what he was doing to me. Now, clearly the scale and and the complexity is, is massively different. But the simple logic is the same. An all-powerful good God would get rid of the mess of, of this world. Yes, unless there were good and necessary reasons to allow the mess of this world to continue. And so at this point, the question actually becomes, well, what are the good and necessary reasons that God has to allow such mess? And the answer is that there's some that we can know some we can guess at, and some that we just can't know. For today, I'm, I'm just going to talk about one key reason that God allows the mess in this world to continue. It's not the only reason, but it's a key one, and it's all that we've really got time to properly address. And that is, without seeing the mess of this world, we would never see our need to come back to God. Why does God let the mess continue? Without the mess, we'd never see our need for God and the devastating consequences of our rejection of God. God repeatedly and passionately warns us that life without him is a far, far worse fate. Did you know that the Bible never shies away from the fact that God not only allows mess in this world, but he has actively handed this world over to the fate that we've chosen for it. God's not helpless in the face of the mess. He actively gives us over to the mess that we are choosing. Let me explain. All people across all times, whether they're religious or not, we've all politely or maybe rudely tried to remove God from being God over his world. And God over our lives. And to do that is to try to live unreality. It's like trying to quench the sun and expecting the world to be a warmer, brighter place. To try to remove God and expect this world to be better with Him, without Him is actually to mess this world up. And God actively hands us over to glimpses of that fate that we're all choosing. In this life, God shields us from 99.99% of what we're actually choosing for ourselves in our hearts. Do you know that? We want life without God being God. And that's really disaster and death. And in this life, God doesn't give us what we want. 
most of the time. But sometimes, just sometimes, God does give us what we want. Sometimes God's, God gives us glimpses of, of life without him as God. And those glimpses are the mess that we see in this world. And we might think, but why? Why would God let us do this? Now, why would God even let us have the option of having so much influence over this world and over the destiny of our own lives? Which is an ironic question to ask when at the very same time we're demanding God give us more freedom from him and we're questioning his very right to have any say in our lives. God gives us real responsibility in this world. It's not token. It's not theoretical. We bear the consequences of trying to run the world without him. He shields us most of the time. But the awful mess we see is just a small taste of the reality that we're heading down. God won't pursue us forever. He will eventually give us what we want. And he sends things our way before it's too late as the only way of opening our eyes to the reality of what we're doing. To challenge us, is this what we really want? If he didn't, we'd happily cut ourselves off from the source of life without ever looking up from what we're doing until it's too late. Why is there so much mess in this world? It's because of us. And it's because if God didn't allow the mess to continue, we'd be completely oblivious to the disaster that we're heading towards. Suffering, it shouts to us that there's something wrong with this world. But actually, it's in our suffering that God shouts to us. C.S. Lewis was an atheist turned Christian. And he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We are a world that's deaf to God. You know, St. Augustine, a long, long, long time ago, said, God wants to give us something, but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. If, if you've not learned to know God, you'll be wretched in the end. Now, we might be okay with that, but God's not. We might think that moderate prosperity and glimpses of happiness and keeping busy are enough for us. They fill our hands. But God wants so much more for us. God has instead an eternity of wonder and joy and perfection in store for us. That's what he wants to give us. And if it takes shaking up our world to open our eyes to the fact that we're cutting ourselves off from him, the source of life, the source of everything that's good, well, he thinks that's worth it. Now, logically, this gives a big part of the answer as to why the world's so messed up. But who cares? On the personal level, it's so inadequate as an answer. You know, when I sat in the waiting room when my daughter Evie was born 12, one, 12 weeks premie, when she was just one kilo, scrawny, getting a syringe and lion jammed into her little arm while her mum couldn't even be there to comfort her, the logical answer, it just doesn't cut it. When my mum was closer to death, when I was sitting by her bed, (laughs) 
watching her, trying to breathe and not even recognizing her. <laughs> the logical answer, it doesn't cut it. Now, the logical answer might be true, and it is true, that God's got good reasons for not ending the pain. But thankfully, it's not the only answer that God gives. He gives us a different answer. He gives the logical answer, but he also gives us an illogical one. One that doesn't make any sense, but one that makes all the difference. On the personal level, what do we want to know? Well, don't we want to know that God cares? That he can comfort us? That he can make a difference? Don't we want to know that we can trust him when we experience the mess of this world? You can know these things. You can know them because of something that is clearly evident but defies logic. What Jesus does at the cross defies logic. It's God's answer to the mess to this world, not a logical, philosophical kind of answer that explains why suffering is necessary, but an answer that shows without a doubt that God is not cold or distant or cruel. In Jesus, God himself experiences the mess of this world beyond anything that we ever will or could ever even understand. That's what the cross is. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What is illogical is that God would love us this much in Jesus, that God would lower himself in him to do this for us. God's answer to the mess of this world proves that he cares passionately about your pain like a parent, but stronger. You know the number of times I've wished I could take some pain away from my child? I would take their pain if I could. You know, I'm terrible when I'm throwing up. You've not seen me and you don't want to. But when they're throwing up, even still, I would take it from them if I could. God is infinitely more like that than we are. He comes to us in Jesus, born in suffering, born in, in poverty and oppression. And the cross is all about God taking into himself our mess. It's all about God absorbing our rejection of him, our rejection of life. It's him taking our sickness, our struggle, our sin, our pain and overcoming it. Jesus at the cross takes it all. He enters the mess in order to one day bring it to an end. That's what the resurrection is all about. Jesus coming back to life. See, God doesn't just sympathize with us in our pain. And he doesn't even just empathize with us in our pain. He shows that there's a time coming when pain and death will be completely overcome and even forgotten forever. God's answer to the mess of this world is, is ultimately not to sit us down and give us a lecture as to why it's necessary. His answer is to show us that we can trust him with both the mess and the solution. You know, Jesus' resurrection is real. Think about what it means. Life without death is possible. 
life without mess and sorrow and sadness is coming. Now, I'm not going to show you today that the evidence for the resurrection. It's there. I would encourage you to go looking for it. And something like the Life Series, which is starting in a, in a couple of weeks, is the perfect place to kind of look at that kind of thing. But the real question is, can you trust God with the mess of his world, with, of this world? Can you trust God with the mess of your own life? And the answer is yes, because of Jesus. I've been a, a minister for 10 years now. I've seen people lose children, lose jobs. I've seen all sorts of pain and suffering. But not once have I seen God let people down. Without God, suffering in the end is meaningless and it's inevitable. You know, it can't even rightly be thought of as mess. It's just the way things are and it's the way things will always be. It's just natural. But we know it's not natural. Everything within us shouts to us that it's not right. You know, that is God shouting to you to come back to him. He cares. He has something so much better in store for you, for you, and you can trust him. God's reasons for mess in this world, they're not nice, they're not comfortable, but they're necessary. There's no doubt God's way is messy, but in the end, it's most messy for him. It takes Jesus to the cross. So even though we can't fully understand the mess of this world, we can see that we can fully trust him. And we can see that he's going to undo the mess forever. Let me pray for us. Father, you know how hard it is for us to trust you in the face of mess. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you've given us every reason to trust you in Jesus. That you are not cold or distant, but you have entered into this mess of this world, though you have not caused it. And in Jesus, you've suffered and died and taken away the cause of this mess in our rejection of you. Lord, we long for the day when we see this mess completely undone. In the meantime, help us to see that with you, our pain and suffering is not meaningless. That it's not cold or cruel that you, Lord, feel it even more than we feel it. And that you, Lord, are bringing it to an end. Lord, help us to trust you and to long for that day and to live for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.